Asian Pop Nation on Sin 90.7. This is Asian Pop Nation on Sin, your favorite Asian music and culture show. Um, this is your EP, Jesse, and aside from me, you guys will also be hearing from our other APN members, including Leisha, Lee, Zenya, Tracy, and Ethan. Before you heard my voice on the airwaves, you guys heard a collection of Japanese tracks, which will really set the mood for the rest of the playlist this week, as we have been lacking in some Japanese music and rock. So this week, we are bringing it all back with a bit of um, Japanese music. Uh, but just now, you heard Psycho by Furui Riho. And before that, you guys heard Maringen by Atarashi Gakko from their EP of the same name. Tonight's show is especially exciting as we bring to you our first interview of season three with the award-winning Asian-Australian author Vanessa Len. We'll also be sharing our thoughts about Asian friendship groups based on a recent TikTok trend and discussing some Asian parenthood customs like like hunting for a perfect name and prioritizing postnatal care. Hello, hello, welcome back to Asian Pop Nation on Sin, where you guys just heard a collection of Japanese tracks, starting off with Closer by People One, and before that you guys heard The Size of Kaiju by Back Number, and lastly you also heard Life by Gen Hoshino. Now, we have a very exciting guest on our show today. She's an Asian-Australian author whose debut novel, Only a Monster, won the 2022 Aurelis Award for Best Young Adult Novel. Some of the avid readers amongst our listeners may already know her name, but with the release of the sequel to Only a Monster, very fittingly named Never a Hero, officially coming out today, we thought it'd be a very fitting to have a chat with Vanessa Len herself. Welcome! Tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, hi, Jessie. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm a Melbourne author and editor, and as you said, my first novel came out last year. It's called Only Yay. a Monster. It was very exciting. Um, and then, yeah, my second book is coming out on August 29th. Yay! Yay. <laughs> um, by the time this airs, it will be precisely August 29th. So if you guys are interested, definitely go grab a copy. Before we delve into some questions about the sequel, let's talk about your debut novel, Only a Monster. Now, if you had to describe it in like one sentence, how would you do that? Um, so I've been describing it as a monster girl whose summer just gets absolutely ruined when the cute guy at work turns out to be a monster slayer. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> and I would also say that Earlier Monster is quite like a reversal on the hero and villain trope. Yeah, I really wanted to write from the point of view of a monster. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I would always see like you know, movies, um, TV shows where the Asian characters only showed up to do a fight. Oh, and then they... I, can, I can relate. <laughs> and they'll get, like, beaten up by the hero. And then you'd be like, that was the only person that looked like me <laughs> in this whole movie. <laughs> but, oh. yeah, it kind of made me want to write a book kind of about what it would feel like if you had to fight against one of those really good heroes that you oh, kind of have, wow. you watch on the movies and you like them, mm. but you're fighting against them. Oh, <laughs> and that kind of leads very nicely into our next question, which is, what was the process like creating the story? Like, obviously, you had a time when you first thought of the idea and you're like, I want to make this into a book. Um, so what was the process like? Were there any setbacks? And also, like, how long did it take? <laughs> Um, okay, so it took a really long time, probably longer than it should have, but um, the first thing I did was um, I knew it was going to take me a little while, 
So I thought, I really want to make this fun for myself. So I made this really big list of all my favourite everything, like my oh, favourite wow. shows, films, characters, because I was like, and I really recommend this if you're a writer yourself and you're not quite sure what to write. I was like, I really want to know exactly what I like the most so I can just put it all in my book and kind of build the world from that. Mm. So, um, yeah, I made my list and I kind of looked for patterns and I was like, I think I really like time travel. <laughs> oh, time travel. Time that's, travel. That's a very interesting one to tackle for a debut novel as well. I also wanted to ask, how is your planning process for time travel? Because time travel confusing can be so confusing. I didn't know that at the time because I thought because I loved time travel stories, I was like, this will be a breeze. And it wasn't. It was not? <laughs> no. I think um, one thing I didn't realise was there would just be narrative issues. Like, you know, um, there would be, it's hard to create stakes if there's time travel because, mm. you know, they could just time travel out of this problem. <laughs> um, it's hard to have time jeopardy, which is like this bomb is going to go off in 30 seconds. But then again, you could just time, time travel, travel <laughs> stop the bomber before the time. <laughs> so that was a really steep learning curve. How do I still create tension? How do I still create stakes? Um, yeah, if I were to do it again, I probably would not have picked time travel for my first novel, <laughs> but it was fun. But your main character, Joan Chain Hunt, is of mixed heritage, and that really reflects a lot of our experiences here in Australia. A lot of Asian Australians are also mixed heritage. Um, did you draw from any of your personal experiences when creating Joanne as Joan as a character? Um, I didn't so much draw from my own experience. I guess I did in that I'm really drawn um, to characters that kind of belong and don't belong in multiple mm. worlds. Um, I'm, I, but I was really keen to, I guess, add some representation to the pool of mm. young adult novels. Um, because certainly when I was growing up, there was nothing. <laughs> I yes. was nothing. I was really thinking about it and I was like, I think the only time I ever saw myself was in this like 15 second lamb ad one time. It was like um, an Asian Australian girl, which I'd never seen on television before, is at her friend's house and the, um, her parents ask her, where are you from? And she's like, I'm from Ballarat. And I was like, wow, I've never seen myself on television before. Um, and I didn't want, you know, kids today to have that same mm. kind of annihilating, like, um, erasing experience in the media. Mm. I kind of really wanted to include some representation. So, um, yeah, I, that was really a big reason why I wrote this book. Um, I just wanted to have, yeah, I just wanted kids to have access to, like, an adventure, or like mm. a really fun adventure story um, that I would have wished I could have read when I was growing up. And now they do. <laughs> and another thing I really love about Only a Monster is how naturally you've incorporated a lot of different aspects of representation. Like I noticed one of my, two of my favorite characters, aside from the main cast, of course, is Jamie and Tom, who are married, and it was so cute. And I would just love to know um, how you went about creating them and how that came about, if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, there's a married couple um, in the book, Jamie and Tom. Um, they're probably my, uh, probably two of my favourite characters. Um, for some reason, they were just always in the concept of the book. Um, oh. I, I, I had called them, Jamie didn't have a name for a long time. He was just the scholar in my mind. <laughs> but they were always in the book. Um, I think I had wanted, because they're on the monster side, mm. <laughs> but because we are all on the monster side, we're on their side. Um 
I had really wanted allies um, in my book to be diverse as well mm. as the main character. I just feel like it just represents the real world, you know? Mm. Uh, Jamie and Tom are actually part of the 12 monster families of London that you introduced in Earlier Monster. And in the sequel, uh, Never a Hero, can we expect to see more of those 12 families? Yes. Um, I think that one of the really fun things about getting to write a sequel is that you get to delve deeper into the world building. So yeah, in the book, there's these 12 families of monsters who all have a common power and that is that they can time travel. But the catch is they could only time travel if they first steal time from the human lifespan. So they can like, if they touch the back of your neck, they could steal a year of your life and you would die a year earlier than you thought you would have normally. Mm. Um, but yeah, when they do that, they can travel a year in time. So there's 12 of these families, but they also have their own special power. And so it was really fun in book two to get to start to explore all the different powers, mm. all the different kind of rivalries and politics. But by the end of the first book, our protagonist Joan attempts to have a, appears to have achieved her goal of rewinding time to save her family. But as a cost, she lost the relationships she built along the way, the people who she became friendly with, um, lost memories, and she's basically alone with all these memories. And now, um, in a Never a Hero, you seem to be playing around with the idea of what would have happened if Nick and Aaron had switched places. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so Nick is this human hero in book one who kills monsters. Um, and Aaron is a very hot monster guy who's also from an enemy family to Jones, and they have to team up to fight Nick the hero. Um, but... As you say, spoiler, um, spoiler. <laughs> um, Joan and Aaron win the day at the end of book one. Yes. <laughs> um, Joan resets the timeline and really book two is about the consequences of that act, mm. even though... Um, even though she thinks at the time it was the right thing to do, she starts to see, oh, there's some really huge consequences happening in book two, um, including the fact that Aaron doesn't remember her anymore. Oh, Very sad. The enemies uh, again. <laughs> the enemies again. Um, and then Nick is a maybe maybe ally, but maybe enemy as well. So um, Joan is going to have to team up with her old allies again because there's an even bigger threat that arises because Nick is no longer the hero and he's not there just to, to, to stop the villain. Are there any specific goals or messages you wanted to convey in this sequel that readers can look forward to? Um, I mean, it's really like it's a fantasy adventure, but I think if I wanted anyone to take something away from it, um, I was really interested in kind of the way that heroes... Um, gain empathy from from narratives mm. and I was sort of thinking okay so how do you make a monster em um, sympathetic and I was like well I guess you show their family their friends the people who they love and who love them you give them some stakes their hopes their dreams and at that point I think the reader does tend to feel sympathy for that mm. person and I really wanted to create this world where you understand everyone's point of view mm. like you might not agree with it you might choose a side but you still understand their point of view so I think if I wanted people to take anything away from it it was maybe to look at those people lying on the ground <laughs> after the hero beats them up and think what's their story <laughs> did you have any main inspirations behind the sequel storyline like how did you go about planning it after what a hit only a monster was thank you um I did this really 
I don't, I would not recommend it, but I spent three <laughs> years before I started writing the first book of building the world, building the characters, their backstories. So I already had pretty much everything I needed to write book two. Because mm. um, I initially, had, I had just never written a book before. So I had initially thought I could fit all of this plot into one book, which was not the case. <laughs> so happen. in a way, yeah, in a way, book two was always planned. Mm. But that brings us very nicely into our next point, which I'm not sure if all all of our readers know, but Only a Monster is actually a trilogy. Did, did you always plan for that to be? Like, I know you said that the second book was kind of planned, but did you plan for there to be a trilogy? Um, I mean, I wanted there to be a trilogy, but actually when it came to selling it, I hadn't realised that um, people were selling duologies more than trilogies now. Mm. So I was really, really lucky that the publisher bought all three of them. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Um, I felt really, really, really lucky because... Um, yeah, I guess the trend at the moment is duologies. Mm. Um, now that the sequel is out, where can our readers find it? Where can our readers buy it? Um, just anything like that. Um, so thank you. Um, you can buy it really anywhere, any bookstore, um, any online bookstore. You can buy special editions if you wish to. <laughs> um, yeah, you should be able to buy it anywhere where you buy books. Mm. And a bit of a final question. Do you have any advice you would like to share for young aspiring writers um, that want to put out unique stories like Only a Monster out into the world? Um, I would suggest... Can I say that one again? <laughs> um, I would suggest... Uh, I, I actually wrote it kind of in a group of other people who were writing at the same oh. time. Yeah, I had really wanted to write a book and... Um, I just started talking about it with friends and family and quite a lot of people came out of the woodwork and were like, I'm also writing a book. <laughs> so I think one thing that I would recommend to young writers is just to reach out to your own, like people who you know will definitely support you. Mm. Um, just tell them you're writing a book or you'd like to write a book and you might be surprised. at find, You might find out that other people in that group are also writing a book. Um, I actually wrote mine alongside... Um, uh, an author called Shelley Parker Chan, and they wrote a book, amazing book, called She Who Became the Sun. So that I was, read that. It was so good. It's so good. It's so, so good. Um, please also buy that book. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, um, but, yeah, there was something about doing that with Shelley, and there wasn't really a market at the time when we started because we, we, took, we took a while to write these, this mm. first book. Um, there wasn't really a market with Asian leads mm. in, like, fantasy. I mean, there was a little market, but we it was enough that we were – we felt a little bit like we were taking a risk, um, but we kept saying to each other, look, we would want to read these books. We yeah. would want to – you know, we would buy them. Um, and so we just kept saying, look, if we build it, surely they will come. <laughs> and they did. And they did. <laughs> and I guess that's the important thing, just writing things that you would want to read yourself and – yeah, that's how Only a Monster came about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would say write what you want to read yourself. Write what makes you really happy. Mm. And as a final little thing, um, where can our listeners find you? Any other social media, um, websites, uh, things like that? Um, so you can find me at vanessa.len underscore write on Instagram and on vanessalen.com. That's my website. Mm. And this is a final little question. Um, it's fine if you don't have anything, but is there any um, Asian music tracks that you would like to play afterwards? I did come up with a song, um, Dummy Im's In Between, because I thought it really suited Joan. But yeah, that has been our interview with Vanessa Len. If you guys are interested, definitely check out Only a Monster and Never a Hero. 
And if you guys would like to know what other things Vanessa is up to, definitely go check out her socials and her website. Um, but now we shall be playing the song that Vanessa just mentioned um, called In Between by Dami Im. Once again, thank you so much, Vanessa, for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Jessie. Yay, thanks thank for, you coming. for having me. <laughs> Welcome back to Asian Pop Nation on Sin, where you guys just heard a collection of tracks by Korean artists, starting off with Time to Shine by Haikee. But before that, you guys heard Fry's Dream by Akmu. But last but not least, you guys heard Vanessa Len's recommendation for a song, which is Dami Im's In Between. And fun fact, Dami Im is actually a Korean-Australian artist who is best known for representing Australia at Eurovision. Speaking of a feeling of being in between things, um, some of us here at Asian Pop Nation are obviously mixed culture and we have a lot of different friends of different cultures. Well, recently there's been a TikTok trend emerging where people talk about their experiences with toxic Asian friendship groups. And so us here at Asian Pop Nation thought it'd be very fitting to offer some of our own experiences and our thoughts behind this trend and whether we agree or disagree with some of the points being made um, with the people jumping in on the trend. So yeah, without further ado, I will be cutting right along to Leisha. I think a lot of times when I'm starting a segment here on APN, it tends to be about something that's happening in the internet world, and this is no different. We are going down the TikTok rabbit hole this time, as my FYP, as of the past like week or so, this whole particular conversation on TikTok has been going viral at the moment. Basically, there's been very hot discussions in regards to all Asian friend groups. It all started back from this one TikTok user that just made like a very quick video, no voice, just with a very simple caption of how they genuinely do not like Asian friend groups. And then they even captioned under it, say, because most of y'all are like y'all's parents, toxic gossipers and rude. And after that initial video was made, it kind of sparked this massive discussion on TikTok where so many other Asian creators, particularly I would like to make a point that it is uh, Asian American specifically. And surprisingly, most, if not all the videos I have seen all agree with the same point that the original creator made saying as an Asian person, they genuinely don't like an all Asian friend group. And yeah, again, like I said, since then, it's many viral videos have splurged from this topic. The popularity has even gone to the point as even people who are not Asian have come up just to make posts and stuff saying like, what is going on with the Asian American community? Because why am I seeing so many videos of Asian people talking about how they don't like their own all Asian friend group. And yeah, I wanted to bring this topic up to the APN space because I just found it so fascinating in a way that there's this, been this big movement online lately from Asian American creators talking about how they don't like all Asian friend groups. And there are a list of reasons as to why. Several which will differ based on like which videos you've seen, but from what I have seen, the general consensus these videos make is that a lot of all Asian friend groups are quite colorist, excuse a lot of racism, uh, and quite a few videos make note of how I guess a lot of these type of Asian friend groups are very like 
I guess one noted is the type of thing they're going with, like very into the same thing, Valorant, Boba, 88 Rising, all that sort of stuff. And then again, various different reasons. But I want to pass this argument to, I guess, the APN table of whether you guys agree or not that Asian friend groups are toxic or do you or do you not like all Asian friend groups? This is so funny because we are literally an Asian friend group. Yeah, but I think the yeah, main literally. distinction. <laughs> literally, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think the main distinction here is that we're not an Asian American friend group, and we could end the we could end the segment right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally. No, just going through some of these videos. The main thing I'm getting is that this really squares with what my friend who my friend went to America to study, and she was like, I actually don't hang out with Asians that much in America. I find that I don't have a lot in common with them. I usually hang out with like other internationals. I was like, what? That, that's crazy. How can you not hang out with Asians? Because like, since I've been young, I've pretty much only ever had Asian friend groups. Like, I think in Australia, it's like a safety feeling. Like we feel safer together because we're quite similar to each other. And we feel like Asian friend groups are way better than groups where there's like one Asian girl and a throng of white kids. Like that girl is going to be doing some therapy later on in life. I was that one girl in when I went to primary school in Adelaide. Adelaide, no. Yeah, so I was literally the only Asian there. <laughs> um, but yeah, like what Tracy said, when when I actually moved to Melbourne and I met like Leisha and everyone, like Hi. all my friends, I was like, oh my god, like I feel at home, I feel safe. Like these people know like the same stuff that I know like all my life experiences that the white people in Adelaide they just didn't get like me bringing um dumplings to school and getting laughed at none of that happened when I was with my Asian friends so yeah um but yeah that was that was my primary school experience yeah and you went to school in a super Asian area yeah although it wasn't the Asian school in the area but it was still really Asian yeah so yeah that would have been very different to Adelaide Mm -hmm. I think the main thing is just that, like, Asians, we still feel like we're a minority here. Like, maybe because a lot of us are, like, immigrants, like, Leisha, you're technically first-generation immigrant. Yeah. you're, like, the first generation to come over here. Yeah. Or your parents are the immigrants. So you still feel very unstable. You still feel very connected to your, your family's culture, I guess. Yeah. And you don't feel like you fully belong to Australia. Whereas Americans, I feel like there are a few more generations in it's either that or the fact that Americans are rich. I think maybe it might be that it's it's like both. It's like the, the, the immigration history and also the fact that they're like horribly rich, East Asian specifically. Like their parents have PhDs and are like dentist, lawyer, doctor, Silicon Valley people. <sighs> Whereas in Australia, I feel like there's more of a spread across the different mm. income brackets. I, I'm very curious if like, because I think, Tracy, you mentioned it, and then I just know it personally from Lee as well, that you guys are in, like, all Asian friend groups. Do you find that any of, I guess, the criticisms that people make in these videos, do you have any similar experiences like that presently or in the past or whatever? I've never been, like, in friend groups. Like, the groups they're talking about are, like, big groups that hang out together. Like, they're groups, whereas people I've always hung out with have been very, like, very small groups or individuals, I feel like. Lee, Lee, then passing the mic to you. Hey, do you feel like in the videos and stuff that you know you watch through hearing these people who've been in Asian all Asian friend groups and talking about all these negatives and stuff that you have shared these negatives as well, or 
again you think it's completely no or you think there are some elements which are true not true there's definitely some elements that are true like with ada rising and valorant like i feel like most asians are into that anyways um but like i don't know there's nothing wrong with that i think their point is like that's all they talk about but Mm. i don't think that's true with well my friend group at least same with tracy i i've never been in like a huge massive group of asians like it's always just been me and like two close friends or whatever Mm. and then like with me and my close friends i'm the only one who talks about valorant and stuff and they both don't know but then when i'm in like the bigger group it's just like two other people that play valorant anyways but like i think there's just it might just be the americans bro (laughs) the asian americans like we talk about so much more i don't know it's just like there's some elements that are true but I think with the bigger friend groups, I have definitely seen like other friends that are in their exclusively Asian massive group. Um, very toxic. Um, I'm not that close with them, so I don't actually know what actually goes behind the scenes. But I just heard rumors that they're like, you know, they're always like talking behind each other's back, like date within the group and then they break up. Oh. And then, you know, that's like, but I think that's not like a like an exclusively Asian thing. I think it's just like a big group thing. Like it's bound to happen. That's why I just have like small friend groups because I feel like, I don't know, it's just like less toxic and you're just like closer with your friends in general. Yeah, I think bigger friendship groups tend to feel a bit more like politics than like actual friendship groups maybe. These TikToks, the ones I've watched, they're mostly talking about cliques and cliques are always horrible and toxic no matter the race. But yeah, uh, I agree. This is Asian Pop Nation on Sin. You guys just heard a collection of pop tracks of different sorts, whether it be K-pop, alt-pop, or just pop in general. But first off, you guys just heard Truth or Dare by Rocking Door Roa, which is a solo release from member Roa of the K-pop girl group Rocking Doll. And before that, you guys heard Go Away by Chong the Nomad, which is an explicit track, just so you know. And even more before that, you guys heard Rowdy by Sorn featuring Shoyeon. Um, And yeah, in our upcoming segment, we will be speaking more about our experiences with Asian friendship groups. And in this segment in particular, you'll get to hear about me and Ethan's experiences with friendship groups and Asian friendship groups specifically. And also in general, what... um, Asian friendship groups can be and why they can be toxic. So I shall be moving right along and cutting straight to the team. I mean, okay, Ethan and Jesse, both of you, I'm very curious about what you (laughs) both think. Yeah, because so far I've been passing it to Tracy and Lee. Yeah, what about you two, huh? I'll go first. I think I've been through my schooling experience in Melbourne. I think I've been in a lot of schools that have been disproportionately a lot more Asian focused like to a very significant degree um, and so I think because of that a lot of my friends are just because of that kind of population it's like mostly Asian friends as well like I think I get along well with a lot of my friends and a lot of my friends I've known for like over 10 years and so on and so forth and we tend to get along fine <laughs> I don't know how to talk about Asian friend groups because to me it's just been like oh it's, it's always like it's just the way it is it yeah. is the way um Anyway, Jesse, do you want to go first before I think of any more insightful comments to add? Bro said there is no war in passing, say. <laughs> I did it after Jesse. <laughs> um, I would 
say like my experiences with like Asian friend groups are similar in some ways to a lot of you guys. I want to bring back the point that both Lee and Tracy kind of touched on, which is like bigger groups of friends mm. can get very toxic. Most of my friends are Asians, not gonna lie, which I don't really intentionally go out to do, but it just kind of ends up this way. Um, but they're kind of divided into like smaller groups. Like for example, I have a friendship group that's from high school. I have a friendship group that talk about areas of interest that we all like, and I have like APN, that kind of thing. Everyone gets along pretty fine, and we don't really talk much about like Valorant and Boba, although. Yes, boba is a thing in Asian culture. Bubble tea. Yeah. boba. But then another thing I also notice within these friendship groups is like because we're kind of caught between two cultures in a sense, there are some people that lean in more towards the Asian side and some people that lean in more towards like the Australian values and that kind of thing. So sometimes even within like the smaller friendship groups and maybe specifically Asian friendship groups, um, there can still be differences in how people interact and like people that you feel closer to like for example i have a friendship group from high school and there's a few people in that one that speak chinese really well and so they prefer to speak to each other in chinese and that kind of comes with it its own kind of culture in a sense that i can't really join as much because i'm not so good at chinese <laughs> so yeah, but that's my take on it. I think they're not all toxic, but they can be toxic. Yeah, so what we're what we're discovering is that <laughs> friendship groups are different. You can't paint them all with the same brush. But I guess the ones that get the most traction on TikTok are the ones which are going to be like the craziest, absolute worst, terriblest ones. Terriblest. I was just going to say, like, what is up with, like, the boba thing? Like, it's not... <laughs> Like, it's not, like, a big thing in Australia, or at least in, like, my friend group. Like, we're not always like, oh my god, let's go get boba. I mean, it's cool, but, like, I don't know. Yeah. There's better st- stuff to do. In America, it, like, it seems to be, like, a really, like, strongly, like, they strongly identify with it. It's, like, an identity marker for them. Whereas here, it's it's still sort of an identity marker, but maybe less so. Maybe because we have so many other things which we consider Asian identity markers. So we, maybe bubble tea doesn't have that same symbolic Rip. effect. Doesn't have so much of a chokehold into our, I guess, Asian Australian community. I guess talking about wrapping up the topic, we're talking about some positives in regards to being in like all Asian friend groups and stuff. Because <laughs> okay. I think way earlier in the segment, Tracy and Lee, you both kind of shared this sentiment of like, Something that I really value in like all Asian friend groups, it is that it is for me, especially I do kind of see it as like a safety blanket almost still while I'm here in Australia. The numbers are wavering now, but I still have grown up most of my life in an Asian country. And so coming into a country where it's predominantly like with Western ideals and everything, I definitely saw a lot of my Asian friend groups in the past and in current days as well as kind of like a sort of safety blanket, almost like a tour guide type of thing as well of like things that I just don't know and I'm still learning about Australian culture. I feel like, again, with my Asian friends and all that stuff, they're able to guide me through that while also bringing a lot of relatability to what I already know and stuff like that. That's kind of, that's like for me, but obviously what are some problems that you guys can think of within your own like, I don't know, experiences with all Asian friend groups? 
I think the main thing is that as as I said, like most Asians, like it's either we've immigrated or our parents have immigrated. Our parents are all around a certain age. They're all part of a specific generation. And it means that we can complain about our parents in very specific detail and people understand what we mean. <laughs> I think this is a huge thing among Asian friendship groups. Like if I try to talk about it with like a white girl from Q, like she would have zero idea of what <laughs> I was talking about. Like I, sometimes I, I just feel like t- discussing something Asian and I forget that I'm talking to someone who isn't Asian and I can feel their brain like whirring to a stop or they're like thinking really, really hard to themselves. Like, don't be racist. Don't say anything racist. Don't say anything racist. So like just talking to Asian people, they don't have that tension to these conversations. Like it's not because they're racist at all. It's just because they don't know how to talk about Asian topics. And it turns out that being Asian, a lot of the time you want to talk about Asian topics. Yeah, I think tangentially related to what Tracy was saying, I think when you're a foreigner in in like a Western country, for instance, I think it's very easy to fall into a trap where you start to get internally, like internal racism, because it makes you feel a lot more like disconnected from your community. And so you have a lot of conflict between like trying to embrace your culture and being individualistic, but still trying to fit in with the wider society within the context of like a Western Caucasian country. And I think when you've got Asian friends, it's easier for you to navigate that conflict because what's the word like you're not tiptoeing around eggshells you can kind of just be like yeah my mom went to the asian grocery and they bought this really obscure specific chinese snack and yeah we all love that let's pass that around yada 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 i don't know if i should say the story but i have a very specific memory in high school because in my first year in high school i was in a class with like mostly white people but in my year five class i met my friends who i'm still friends with and i knew they were my friends because they brought out like a flask with like fried rice and i was like yo that is bomb bro and yeah i'm still friends with them (laughs) the fried rice in the flask same (laughs) so sweet bro that's so sweet Mm. so i'm sure that this is a very interesting topic for our listeners out there many of who may have their own asian friendship groups or not um let us know what you think or not that's fine too Hello, hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to Asian Pop Nation on Sin, your resident Asian music and culture show. You guys just heard a couple of great tracks, starting off with Daydream by Kiki, which is a Thai band, featuring Empte, which is a Japanese band. And before that, you guys heard Hey by Easy Kite. And even more before that, you guys heard Summer Charm by Yenin from her EP Ready, Set, Love. Now, we all have Asian parents, don't we? Um, I'm sure we do. And I'm sure some of us have Asian names and Asian, very complicated Asian names with complicated meanings. Well, recently there was a video that came out of a family... Ha! There was a video that came out of a family huddled over lots and lots of books, hunting for the right characters to name a newborn child. Um, and us here at Asian Pop Nation thought it'd be very fitting for us to discuss some of our own experiences with names and whether we, if we were to ever become parents, would ever decide to name our child and go through such a long process to name our child. So without further ado, I will be cutting straight along to the team. Family's a big deal in Asian cultures, and so we thought we'd share some interesting tidbits in the world of Asian parenting that has um, been circling the internet. So one is this family that has gone viral uh, in China and about a video that this soon-to-be mother had 
shared of her family spending three nights poring over like ancient Chinese texts and dictionaries to find names for her twins that she's expecting. So some of the things that you can see in the video that the family were looking over are like huge books of like 300 song lyrics, poems from the Tang Dynasty, Chinese language dictionaries and encyclopedias. Would you go this far? <laughs> Especially for those, I suppose, who do have Chinese heritage, whether you think you could do this as a parent yourself, would you, I guess, don't go down those historical routes and search for a, a meaningful name for your kids? In my family, everyone's names were just given to us by our one single super educated um, grandpa. So he gave us some super obscure characters that no one really knows how to like write. You have to like clarify how to write them. But because of that, no one else really needed to think about like what their children were named. They would just ask him. Um, that's on my mom's side. On my dad's side, on the other hand, um, they named his sister Bridge and they named him some random slang, obscure slang that doesn't really mean anything. And they're all like very simple single character names. So they were just completely randomly flipped open on the dictionary, probably. So just two, two very different attitudes towards naming children. But I don't know. I think I'm about to ask my mum because she at least has an understanding, the cultural understanding of like what a good Chinese name is, because it is really important. Um, I wouldn't be able to search through it for it myself though. Like I wouldn't be able to <laughs> open up a huge tome of like Chinese poetry and be like, that's a good character because I wouldn't know most of the characters. <laughs> yeah, Chinese people are just super, super superstitious, really. I think that's the main thing you gotta take away from the story. Like they think that your name really like predicts your your success and fortune in life as a person. So if you give your kid a name which like might have like a bad meaning, it has the wrong number of brush strokes or something. Um like genuinely the number of brush strokes is the number the number of brush strokes is really is really important like my name is like three multiples of eight like three and eight are both lucky numbers anyway um yeah like that's super important you don't want to curse your kid accidentally <laughs> we should were you going to mention something would you go this far I'm just going on the mindset of how my parents kind of came up with like my name or like how my siblings have their names it's all comes from like okay with my siblings name specifically i know with one of them it's just because my grandma really likes princess diana as sure like any um middle-aged asian woman has like a very strong attachment to princess diana and then with my name specifically that was just like completely up to my grandparents till this day i still ask my mom like oh if you were in charge of picking a name would you choose anything and she's literally like Oh, yeah, I never gave like a second thought to your name at all. I just immediately passed it as like a grandparent duty. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so like in my shoes, probably because of how like lax my family has been with like naming and stuff like that. And since like my sisters as well now have kids as well, they've also just literally picked names purely from like, oh, I watched this movie one time and I really like this main character. <laughs> name and now I'm gonna name my son that that's kind of just been the route that's been going on in my family so in my case I probably might just do that route like who knows I picked the name Madison because I really like 
the Mycene dolls when I was a kid or something. I don't know. It's gonna be like my journey is definitely gonna be like that. Um, but I do have very strong, <laughs> very strong admiration for I guess this uh mother who has gotten like the whole family freaking like searching through all these texts and stuff, trying to find the best name from again like poems from the Tang Dynasty and stuff. This is just, I don't know, never mind. But yeah, I probably wouldn't go on this route. It's gonna be like, so like, ooh, I like this pop culture thing. So they might tell this, but I don't know. Maybe this will be like a time capsule for Leisha many, and I mean many years in the future, because in this economy, not gonna be coming up with kids. But yeah. I think Chinese people like it because they like being reminded that they have a long and deep and vast cultural legacy. It makes them feel really good about themselves. They're really proud of it. Um, and also because it gives you the feeling of like a bunch of wizards looking for like a spell in like an ancient spell book from like a fantasy novel <laughs> or something. And they're like, oh, we just need to find the one spell to like break you out of the curse. It has that sort of storybook vibe. Like it's a montage. You know, it's set to like upbeat music, spell flipping montage. No, I actually witnessed like one of my older cousins trying to choose a name for their kid, and for some reason, I feel like they put more effort into it than than my parents' generation. And then, like, because my parents are like my mom and my dad, they both have multiple siblings, and most of the time, their Chinese names are like the first letter is the same and the last letter is different, and they just go down the sibling list and choose that I don't know how the, exactly they chose the other character but in my cousin's case we have they ha there's like a WeChat like family group right everyone was like contributing and like trying to find <laughs> like um, they were making suggestions based on like birth dates and like the the moon I don't know um and then when they finally chose the name my cousin sent a long text message to that group chat being explaining how it was chosen and why each character was chosen. <laughs> it was just the craziest thing to me. I don't think most of us here would go to that length. And then also, we don't know enough about the language to try to. <laughs> oh, this just makes me think like my family is so <laughs> like like not lazy but they're like there's no like checking back in the history books and like tracy's explanation of like ooh, wanting like giving spells I like... stuff <laughs> i feel like the rest of my family actually put at least like some effort into the name and then there's like my family and more specifically my dad who really doesn't care like he he explained how he thought of my name right and he explained it like this in the past, he had a neighbor, and they had a little daughter that was named Jessie, and they were like, great name. That's great. That's yeah, like, your we, name like, now. we like that one. See, yeah, exactly. It's literally just yeah, like... But, like <sighs> English names are so different to Chinese names, right? Because Chinese, like, English names is like, there's kind of like a limited number of ones of, like, acceptable English names, kind of, and you just kind of say, say like, you're like, it sounds nice, whatever, but with Chinese, it's like, it's, it's actually, like, encouraged to go with really obscure characters okay because it makes your blessing more nuanced and multi-toned the flavors of that name just really important you know no like it, it's like it, it's like um a symbol of like how learned and intellectual your family is kind of so okay. they're really like looking to like make sure 
your name is like super complicated. Well, not complicated, but like super obscure. Oh, they really, yeah. That's so interesting. Oh my god. Well, it's not like even obscure. It's like it needs to have like all the elements in it. Like my mom's has like water elements and grass mm-hmm. elements and stuff. It needs to be balanced with like the day they were born. There's a lot. Oh, it's just so it, it makes me think back because again, like I'm trying to think back to my Chinese side of my family, but even then too. I mean, they all have like traditional Chinese names, but I don't think any of them have ever mentioned, at least to the family, that like, oh, their name comes from like a very specific like Chinese folklore, like you know, spending a long time with the characters and all that stuff. So I don't know what that says about my family. <sighs> um, and then my name, LOL, which is like an Indian name, but it doesn't have like any. I, from my knowledge, I don't think it has any ties to like anything specific it's just that the name comes from my grandparents going to a temple and then getting I guess somebody who looks at like constellations and stuff to look at a light when I was born and then seeing the stars and everything and the timing I was born and getting my name but at the same time also making my name subconsciously rhyme like the same as all my cousins from my dad's side of the family no, I just find it so interesting with like Chinese names specifically that there is just like I don't I don't know if I want to say the word need, but like I guess a societal expectation almost to have like names that like really derive from something deep and meaningful and that your family really like takes their time. They took their time with it. This is Asian Pop Nation on Sin, and you guys just heard a collection of indie tracks, starting off with I'm Just Like That by Yon Lapa. And before that, you guys heard Now by Yokorio from their album Morai Kiss. And even more before that, you guys heard A Toothpick by Sour Milk, which, just so you know, it is an explicit track, so just keep that in mind. And coming up next, we will be talking about another aspect of Asian parenthood, which is inevitably postnatal care of the mother. Um, if you guys don't know, Asians tend to have a very high standard when it comes to postnatal care. Like, generally, in a lot of Asian cultures, once the mother gives birth, she's not allowed to leave her home for, like, 30 days, and she just has to recuperate. Well, recently, there has been, I guess, a postnatal care service that has been trending or gaining popularity among people in Australia, and people are paying about close to like $50,000 for this kind of care. So we thought it'd be interesting to discuss if we think it is worth it. And yeah, I will pass right along to the team. Um, And then I guess along the lines of like, I guess specifically Chinese families kind of going the above and beyond in like um, parenthood and stuff like that. We also have this other topic um, which goes along the lines of investing in a postpartum care. Um, apparently there's been a growing like popular like it's been growing in popularity of luxury Chinese medical care centers, specifically in Australia. So we're going like home turf here. And apparently some new mothers are like paying up to fifty thousand Australian dollars for a month-long stay. Um getting like a full again luxury very traditional chinese style postpartum care includes stuff like postpartum yoga um post pregnancy weight loss exercises you get like a 24 hour caregiver beauty massages maternity 
baby photographer, oh, maternity and a baby photographer. You get really nice, like, daily meals. And you also get regular checkups as well with, pe- with people who are specifically traditional Chinese medicine practitioners. Oh, no, I just had a question. Like, that doesn't sound really traditional Chinese to me. But the main thing is just that they have traditional Chinese medicine practitioners. So it's like it's like a 24-hour sort of, like, postpartum care facility with Chinese traditional medicine, like, spice, like, added in as, like, a complementary spice. Like, you have a spa, you have a gym, and you have your Chinese medicine practitioner consultations every day. So it's not really much of a Chinese thing. I think it's just because it's a rich people thing and a lot of rich people in Sydney are Chinese. <laughs> like, I think that's why <laughs> this is a thing. I mean, I don't know much about postpartum care for obvious reasons, but apparently it's like, I don't know, like a Chinese kind of tradition thing of kind of like, I guess for that whole month that you're kind of confined in the space type of situation. I don't know. How would you explain it? Ms. Yes. So, oh, I don't know about China, but I know Malaysian Chinese people definitely do this. It's it's like that postpartum care. Pretty much you just you literally just stay inside your house for like a month. Um because like because like your body's weak, right? And then you just can't be exposed to like cold air, you can't have cold showers, and there's all these rules. Um and then I guess this article is sort of talking about people who are rich and taking it like a step further and getting like a 24-hour caregiver uh beauty massages and the baby photographer i guess so yeah i think oh definitely like stemmed from that like the traditional chinese thing is like that's what i know traditional chinese people do um but i think you know as we're like uh, coming into the new age a lot of people like I know all my cousins have like just not done that and then all the like older people are like oh my god like this is so bad why are they not staying inside for a month blah blah blah, blah. um but yeah that's just what I heard oh, actually that makes a lot more sense like if this is like a very strong conviction like I don't know how Asian mums like are like when you're on your period you can't wash your hair it's like that, but with pregnancy, when you feel pregnant, you can't go outside for a month. Um, so you may as well glamp um, or yeah. you know, go to a postpartum care place and get um, photo, do photo shoots with your newborn baby. That's just a push from your womb. <laughs> that sounds like the worst time to do a photo shoot with your baby, I must say. Like you're like, I feel like absolute, like terrible. And my baby it is this malformed piece of flesh at this point in time. Okay, <laughs> I don't know wow. <laughs> like, see someone is not a maternal. Apparently, a maternal I was a really ugly baby. <laughs> um, yeah, so like in that case, I, like if my mom hadn't done a photo shoot with me when the first month of me <laughs> being born, like they probably wouldn't look at that photo a lot. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> But yeah, anyways, Lee, you said you were like, you actually knew a lot about those parts of yoga for some reason. No, I don't. <laughs> don't okay. In that case, um, yeah, that's a great place to end the segment, maybe. <laughs> I was just not expecting the little, like, Tracy truth bomb moment of like, yeah, I'm a really ugly baby when I was born. No, I would I not really... want to be photographer. I was a really cute baby, like, okay. maybe two years in. 
or maybe yeah but just not like one month after i was born i mean well i i feel like you could say that about most babies they're all like you know quite like wrinkly and stuff coming out um they look like those hairless cats they do oh yeah that's i think that's like a common comparison <laughs> that can people make but yeah no it's i don't know what it is i mean i I don't know if it's like an Asian people thing. I just, every time I watch videos and stuff of other people, like other Asian folks, they always talk about like, oh, when I go back to the homeland, I always have to do like photography stuff with the family for the sake of like, I don't know. And it's it's not like not a thing with my family because all my family are allergic to cameras apparently. But like, I don't. I don't know why like like i don't know big photography shoot things are like a thing back in asia i don't know if y'all can relate this is true oh that's true <laughs> it's actually <laughs> true why no, is it because really? like internet poster culture is so like inf- it's like everyone's been influenced to become an influencer like what is it i think it's just so i when i went back to Malaysia recently it was the first time I did like the photo shoot thing but it was because my brother had just graduated anyways he brought that back and he had to wear it and like we had a whole like photo shoot and then I think the point is that you get it framed and then it looks nice in your house I would never let anyone see come to my house to see this but we just have this like massive portrait of just us four um and my brother in like the robes so yeah, I don't know. It must be like like an Asian thing to have like a family portrait. Yeah, people love I just realized it's because you can do family portraits in China. Like you can get like more than twelve people in a room and they all be from the same family, whereas in Australia that's like impossible as a Chinese person to do, right? Because mm. in, in China like most of us are like first generation, like it's just a nuclear family family who's here. Whereas in China you have the whole family there and it's usually like oh it's rare that to have the whole family together so let's take a picture so that we remember how everyone looks like before granny dies or whatever you know so it's that sort of thing it's like this is the last picture they might take with their grandchildren before they like pass away like for me anyway whenever i went to china it was always imminently before someone was about to pass away so we took pictures because of that <laughs> i think was the main driver <laughs> I just love the comparison of leaving, like, yes, like, big family achievements, like, my brother's graduation, like, that's why we go back and take photos, and Tracy's, like, a family member's about to die. And oh, yeah, is- no, that, that's true also, because my grandma was super sick before we took the photo, but she's, like, better now, so, you know. But it's also, like, because we are, we live in Australia, and all of my mom's side is in Malaysia, so it's, like, oh, my God, you guys are here and all grown up, so we should take a photo, so, yeah. Yeah. Oh my Otherwise, gosh. They literally forget you exist. Like, yeah. yeah. I think it's just because we're not the ones who are in Asia. So it's like when we go back, that's when they're like, oh, photo shoot time. Because the Asian Australians are here or whatever. <laughs> the foreign kids are here. I mean, again, thank you for educating me on this. I thought it was just like a thing in my head. Now I know y'all have real life experience of this. I guess family is a weird thing in Asia. <laughs> It'd be that way. <laughs> I don't know. If you have any thoughts about this, let us know. If not, that's fine as well. Uh, see you in the next segment. 
This is Asian Pop Nation on Sin, and you guys just heard a collection of great Asian tracks, starting off with Call Me by Ren Evans and Itznik. And before that, you guys heard Happy Im by Umi. And even more before that, you guys heard Hey Song by Millet. Now, this is the last time you'll be hearing my voice on the airwaves for tonight's show, but obviously, apart from me, you guys also heard from our other APN hosts, including Leisha, Lee, Xenia, Tracy, and Ethan. Um, on today's show, we of course talked to the amazing Vanessa Lynn about her upcoming sequel to Only a Monster called Never a Hero. She is an award-winning Asian-Australian author, so if you guys are interested in checking out her works, definitely go do. Um, but aside from that, we also talked about Asian friendship groups and their tendency to potentially turn toxic, um, as is the trend on TikTok recently, talking about that. So we thought it'd be very fitting to talk about it here on Asian Pop Nation. We also talked a bit more about Asian parenting and what that means, especially in terms of naming the kid and what and caring for the mother afterwards, um, both of which somehow are very complicated with its own set of rules and regulations. Uh, so we talked a bit about that. Uh, but it has unfortunately come to the end of our show tonight. I hope you guys enjoyed tuning in to all of our shenanigans today. We definitely did go into some interesting topics. I hope you will tune in next week as well for uh, another collection of interesting segments and, of course, epic songs. But for now, we will bid you adieu, and this is Asian Pop Nation on Sin. Sin.